Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the love of people around us. I'm especially thankful for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Lord, as we look at this topic here today as to why I am a Seventh-day Adventist, I know it won't be comprehensive and totally exhaustive, but Lord, it will have my main goal in mind, to point people to Jesus Christ just the way this church has pointed me to him as well. Thank you for loving us and send the Holy Spirit to guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was there at seminary, I got that help from Don James, but there was times when my wife and I would take trips away from the seminary campus, and one of the places we would go would be up near White Cloud, Michigan. Anybody know where White Cloud, Michigan is here? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really unknown spot for camping. The Manistee National Forest is there, and I won't name to you the little lake we would go to, because if I ever go back, I don't want to find all you gathered around there. So, but at any rate, we would go to this one little lake, and I remember one time going up there, <clears throat> I was doing a project, and my project was to study the Seventh-day Baptist Church. And as I was studying the Seventh-day Baptist Church and making comparisons between it and the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the thought occurred to me, where are we going to worship this Sabbath? Because there is no Seventh-day Adventist Church in White Cloud, Michigan. But there is a Seventh-day Baptist Church in White Cloud, Michigan. So there we were sitting around the campfire, and the thought came to me, why don't we just go to church there in the morning? It's Friday night. And so there we were. We found ourselves going to this little church. Can't hardly see it with the lighting the way it is. But nonetheless, um, if you notice here, it's kind of a traditional church. And as we pulled up there, I wondered to myself, am I going to find what I've been studying about in church history books? The Seventh-day Baptist Church numbers around 50,000 adherents around the world, whereas we number in the millions. We find it's one of the slowest growing, in fact, declining churches in the United States. And the median age is even higher than Adventism. Adventism are median ages in the 50s. Theirs is even higher. You find that they have closed their schools. They've closed all kinds of things. They've been in decline. For years and so I expected when we got to this church and we pulled up at 9:30, thinking they would start Sabbath school at 9:30. they started at 10 o'clock but anyway as I started watching people come in around 10 o'clock I thought yep this is confirming my research they all got gray hair and this is probably a dying church like the rest of them well books can be deceiving can't they because see, if you're parked right there, you don't see this, the back door to that church or the main front door to that church. You just are gonna go into the doorway there where, that, where it's lit right there. And unbeknownst to me, on the opposite side was a whole bunch of young people coming in because there I went into the sanctuary. And as I went into the sanctuary, and it wasn't just because they were having a youth Sabbath, it was because these young people came on a regular basis and they invited their friends that day. The whole sanctuary after Sabbath school, which by the way, they had an African-American young pastor, youth pastor there, and they had a senior pastor there in this one little church. Very surprised. And as Sabbath school ended, I began to hear footsteps. They had a basement. And as I heard the footsteps, people coming up the stairs there, not only were they, the old people there, it was filled with people, about 100 people there. You know, sometimes on a Sabbath, we have 109 people here. That amount of people all squeezed into that little building there. And he went through a beautiful sermon, talked about the Sabbath and other things, and we went downstairs to the fellowship hall, and they had a vegetarian meal. And I looked at the bulletin, and I saw all those small groups they had, and I saw that they were trying to develop a teen center, which now they have developed a teen center 
for after-school programs for the teenagers in the area. And I thought, wow, this is a vibrant, growing church. Look at that picture back there. That picture is over 100 people. They're just crammed over there in front of the church there. They really can't support more than that, short of planning another church. And I also read in their bulletin that they were going to have a, they were going to hand out water bottles in their community during this community run event, but they were very careful to watch out for breaking the Sabbath on that day when they were handing out these. They wanted to extend mercy and water, but they wanted to make sure that they didn't do too much of their labor on that day. They had all things planned out. I thought, wow, committed. And I read on the bulletin, they said, preparing the world for Jesus' return. That was their mission statement. Preparing the world for Jesus' return. Question, why are you and I Seventh-day Adventists and not Seventh-day Baptists? You know, if you look at that one little church there, and you think, well, if they would just multiply that church all around, they would spread the Sabbath truth, the second coming of Jesus, all these different truths. Now, if you've studied them out some more, you know why. But here today, as I was sitting there at the campfire after that Sabbath morning, on that Saturday night, I asked myself, well, wait a minute. They've been around through the Dark Age period, after the, around the Dark Age period, 1600s, and, and you find them emerging in the 1840s, sharing the Sabbath message with Rachel Oaks and all of this. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist and not a Seventh-day Baptist? I had never even asked the question before. Or as years went by, I said, as I came across Seventh-day Church of God, Worldwide Church of God, Seventh-day, I said, well, what, what's, what's the difference? Why am I united with this fellowship? And it seems like nothing can shake me from it. And I came across people who said, you know, I agree with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but I just don't want to be a member of it. Why am I a member of it then? Now, these are questions that come to mind sometimes when you interact with people. And by the time we're done here, we'll have some answers to them. Why am I not a Seventh-day Baptist? Why am I not part of just another Seventh-day church out there? And you really can't shake the seventh day from the Bible. You really just cannot get around it. You can find other people who believe in the seventh day. But why are you a seventh-day Adventist? Why am I a seventh-day Adventist? I have three compelling reasons. Ones that I just cannot get around. And next week will be a fourth, all in and of itself. But the first one is the timing of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. The second one is, is the teaching or the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And the third one is the testimony that I have seen from individuals within the movement. These are my three reasons. I'm gonna unpack them for you here this morning. First of all, the timing. As I looked at the book of Revelation, as I went back that Sabbath afternoon and I, and I began asking questions and I began going back through and reviewing it for my own sake, I was drawn back to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 says, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Remember the woman who was persecuted? Okay, Jesus goes up. The woman stays there. The dragon turns to persecute this woman in Revelation 12. Two wings of eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This denotes a time period when the church would go underground and then eventually after the time period expires would emerge. So I'm looking for a group that would somehow fit this timing. We know this timing, according to the text, Revelation 12, it's after the birth, death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. So it's not Judaism. We don't find it's, it's the Jews. It's not them. They may have birthed the Messiah and all of that, but it's not them. It's after them. Okay? 
And we find it's all the way down when John is writing, it's still yet future, so it's after the first, we find New Testament church times, okay? So it's after 100 AD. We know the woman represents God's people. We know they gave birth to Jesus, and eventually they will bring about a group of last-day followers of Jesus. And so the timing is interesting. You go to Revelation 12, 6, it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be, what is it? Nourished for 1,260 days. That's the same as that times, times, and half a time. That's the same as in Revelation 13, this 42-month period. You start adding it all together, and ultimately the woman or the church is going to emerge after 1,260 years of persecution. Seventh-day Baptists were in existence before this time period actually expires. Okay? They could emerge out of it as a new movement, but we find actually a movement does emerge. And this time period stretches all the way down to the time of the end when we're going to see Jesus and go up into the clouds of glory and go into that beautiful Orion area. We find that this power is also available. The one that persecuted the woman back then and the church emerged up out of it, that power is still all the way there at the end of time. We know that Rome, there's two phases of Rome. There's just the regular beastly period, which you find with this ugly beast below here. But then eventually phase two comes, this ugly little horn in Daniel emerges. And we know that that has to emerge sometime after Rome is divided. Okay, Rome is divided, you go to different historians, around 476 AD. So that this persecuted movement then would have to emerge even after that period of time. So we just start going forward in time. The Bible keeps giving us pieces to move forward, 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 all the way down to this movement. This little horn uproots three kings, has the eyes of a man, and notice it's diverse. It persecutes God's true people. It claims to be the people of God. Claims to be a movement of oneness, but really it opposes everything of God. And this little horn will last until the coming kingdom, and it had a time period of 1260 days or years. So we combine that with Ezekiel, we also combine it with the fact that Daniel sees it going from somewhere around his time all the way to the end of time. We know it's not literal time then. It's got to be symbolic. And we find the 1260 days or years. And I go ahead and I start looking down through time. And I'm thinking, okay, it's, it's after Rome has been divided. It's got to be a power that emerges out of Rome. It's going to be religious and political. It's going to claim to be the church of God, but oppose the true church of God. I find none other than we find the medieval church of Rome. And so as I look at that, we know then if we look into that historical record, we can then begin to say, okay, when did that group get the state's power enough to persecute? And you go to 538, Justinian, we find, uh, gives some power. They also begin wiping out the three tribes, the Heruli, Visigoths, Ostrogoths. We find they have all kinds of holy wars. And so we come up with a timeline. This is it. So 538, that's when the power has been given to it. They emerge with the state which, by the way, is similar to what happened back in Christ's day. They, they crucified Jesus with the help of the state. And they go down 1,260 years, and we should find then, somewhere around here, a group of people emerging to continue the message of Jesus that began in the book of Acts. You see, all these things we've been studying about, oneness from the beginning of time all the way down to the New Testament, community of oneness, it all brings us down to the fact that are we one with Jesus? Are we uniting the world with him? Because he has a movement that has emerged historically to fulfill that mission. And so, 
I believe Adventists who emerged in the 1840s actually fit that time frame. You combine that with Daniel 8. If you want a whole set of slides on this, I can give it to you. Daniel 8, you combine that into the equation. And remember we looked at this? We looked at the stoning of Stephen. We saw the decree went from there all the way down to the time of Stephen. Stephen was stoned here. He comes as the last prophet. The movement of all true followers of Jesus has always been a movement of prophecy. And so we find Stephen comes as a prophet, not just to help his local church, but actually to proclaim a message to the Jewish people saying, time is up. He doesn't call them to repentance in the book of Acts. He actually says, you are guilty. It's a judgment message. So he comes and proclaims that. It ends a time that was cut off in Daniel 8. And that was cut off and it was set apart for the Jewish nation and the leaders. That left us, as we go to that scripture reading of Daniel 8, 14, it gives us 1,810 more years. That is a time of persecution during that time period. Persecution is, happens during that time period and then the church emerges. So let's add that all into there together. All right, so I'm gonna narrow down the time frame then. If that prophecy of Stephen began in 457, goes all the way down to the time of Stephen, that leaves me with 1,810 years left to kind of have this merging church and state alliance that persecutes God's people. God's people go underground and then they emerge again as a visible church of God. We know there's invisible members, all, there's people that are part of the invisible church all over the world. Okay, they may not be called Seventh-day Adventists, but they're following what they have in their heart. But a visible church does emerge in 1844. And that visible church tells people a time of judgment has begun. And that visible church says, you know what, the world's telling you to go this direction, but we're telling you to follow Jesus. Follow the Lamb. Unite your heart with Him. Unite together. And so that timing fits the Seventh-day Adventist church. And for those of you who don't want me talking about the judgment and the atonement, I find quotes like this in our Adventist heritage history. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work for these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement. This is what Jesus is doing right now, isn't it? He's not just twiddling his thumbs, hey, uh, let's, let's wait until all the people are raped in the world that I want to see raped. Let's wait until all the children are maimed. Let's wait until it fills up the cup. You know? Is that really what he's doing? Yeah, it, he, the cup is filling up, but he is doing something in heaven right now. Unless you see him as an absentee landlord of this world. There's got to be something going on right now. And I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the answer to people's questions about what is Jesus really doing right now? So this atonement is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. We talked about in our mission statement as we narrowed it down that we want to declare to people their eternal value in Jesus and prepare them for his soon return. Well, this says that if we want to be in harmony and want to accomplish that mission successfully, we have to understand what's going on in heaven right now. We have to understand that heaven is pouring out all of its resources to save each individual in this world. Jesus loves each one of us. That's what's going on right now. 
And we talked about oneness and being in harmony. This quotation challenges us and says, part of that harmony will exist when we choose to understand the prophecies and to prepare the world for his soon return. So if we don't all agree with that, one main truth, that Jesus is coming soon, that he did raise up this church in prophetic time, the scheme of time and the plan of salvation, then there will be divisions amongst us. But if we do agree to that one truth, along with all the rest, we'll have an energy that really has been lacking in a lot of churches in this world. You can put prepare the world for a soon return on your bulletin, but if you've got nothing to back it up, which no offense to our Seventh-day Baptist friends, but they have historically not been very motivated to share that gospel with the world that they know of, then the movement will begin to flounder and will die. And so this is part of your heritage. This is something not to be ashamed of. It's pointing to Jesus and saying, we have someone who cares enough to have a plan for this world, a plan of salvation. And in that plan, there are key elements of time. And one of them is to emerge, bring up a group of people who will emerge and share the gospel to the world. Are we the only ones? No, we're not. I'm not saying God won't use the Seventh-day Baptist, but he's going to use some to counteract these ugly beasts that we find in the Bible. You're going to look at Doug Batchelor's meetings in October 31, a lot of ugly beasts, but you know what? The main thing is that you and I are counteracting the falsehood in this world through the way we live our lives and through the messages we proclaim. And they have to be founded upon the word of God. And so that's number one, the timing. I don't see that exact timing fitting with the history of the 30-page paper that I did on the Seventh-day Baptists. I see that they have been there for years. They gained a renewed emphasis during the 1800s to share the Sabbath. That's what Rachel Oaks was doing. They had a conference that said, hey, people are looking at the second coming. Let's share the Sabbath. So they did that. But they have not maintained forward movement pushing forward to the second coming. They don't see themselves as a prophetic movement in time. They're part of the Reformation, but they are not continuing the Reformation. I would think if they could stand and restudy some things, they could actually continue the Reformation. And the second thing is the teachings. Seventh-day Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus, don't they? Well, next week we'll look at the testimony a little bit more. But we all keep the commandments. In fact, for a while there, the Seventh-day Baptists were considered brethren of the Seventh-day Adventists. You know that? It was a general conference vote that says, when I as a pastor go and plant a church in a new town, if there are Seventh-day Adventist brethren there, I would not plant the church. That was part of our history. Why would that be? Well, they're off on the state of the dead and a few other things, but they had raised up a group there, and for me to come in and to tear off half of their group into my group, and then cause negative friction in the community over it, it would cause a negative impact on the message. And so the General Conference did tell the pastors, be careful when you're going into areas. They weren't very many Seventh-day Baptist churches, but we actually had a united agreement where they agreed not to go into the areas that we were reaching, and we agreed as a Seventh-day Adventist church not to go into their areas. I can give you that after we're done here. But their teaching is very similar, except for a few areas. They don't believe in the Ellen White as a prophet or, any, or even having a prophetic gift. Some of them will, will agree to disagree and, and some will just tear her down. Others agree to disagree on the state of the dead. So the teaching is a little bit strange there. Ever burning hell, whereas we don't believe in that. And so we find the teaching is, is different. And 
they didn't fit the timing. So I go ahead and I cross them off because they didn't fit the timing. Now I'm looking for another group that emerges after 1798, around 1840s. Well, you could go and start looking at Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups. But what the problem is you have with that is that the teachings are not this way. They don't keep all the commandments of God. And our Latter-day Saint brothers and sisters love their hearts, but they will adapt their day of worship to fit the culture rather than standing for the Word of God. That's what they've told me. And so I look at the teaching and it begins to narrow it down even further. And I see that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a teaching that points people to Jesus. Your Sabbath message points people to Jesus in a powerful way. Don't ever excuse it. Don't ever just somehow push it aside. It is a beautiful message. Don't you realize that Jesus died on Friday? He rests on Sabbath, completing the work of salvation, the payment, the shedding of blood. He rests, and then he resurrects. And what does that mean? Every weekend here, I come together with you. We worship together. We encourage each other. I'm resting in Jesus, knowing that my work, his work of salvation for my heart was completed. Now, what's he doing now? Of course, that's where the blood is being applied in the Day of Atonement. But what we find is the cross stands there in the middle of the Sabbath. The cross links you to the Sabbath, and the Sabbath links you back to creation, and it points you forward to the second coming. The Sabbath is beautiful. It's the way it is. And Revelation 14 is our FBI slide. I'll invite our young people to write that down. So the first reason why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist is because the timing of your movement just fits. You fit the plan of salvation, timing elements of prophecy like no other group. The second reason is your teaching. I see the Sabbath there. I see the emphasis on Jesus. Maybe there's times in our history where we didn't emphasize it enough, but I see it there. And Revelation 14, verse 6, unites a teaching with the Sabbath at the end of time. Revelation 14, verse 6. Do all, all of our young people have that marked down? Do you have it marked down? Mitchell, do you have it marked down back there? Okay. Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having the eternal gospel. This never changes. This is good news. This goes all the way down to the end of time. Good news. And it goes to all who live on the earth. Remember Jesus said it would go to all and then the end will come? To every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Where else do you find something good being spoken of by God that involves the world and the nations, that involves worshiping him and giving glory to him, but it involves the seventh day Sabbath because it's right there heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs. It goes all the way back to creation. This is merely echoing the words of Jesus at the beginning of the Bible. Didn't he say that these things were good at creation? Didn't he then usher in at the end a rest at the end of creation week? That echoes down through time. And then you get down to Jesus' words in the book of Matthew, and he goes and talks about the gospel going to all the world, and then the end will come. So this is echoing Jesus all the way down from the beginning of the Bible down through. Jesus' message has not changed. The messengers that it ends up going through may change over time, but his message still remains. It's going to echo down to the end. It's going to call people back to worshiping him the way that he set it up in the beginning. And so that's what we teach. 
But we also have a judgment message. Fallen and fallen is Babylon the great. There is going to be a counterfeit oneness message, a counterfeit church at the end. It's going to reemerge as well. It's going to become a major, major player. And if you read your Bibles in Corinthians, Satan himself can appear to be an angel of light at the end of time. Imagine that happening. And he unites all the world religions into one conglomerate. If you doubt that scenario, read the book Joshua in the Holy Land. Okay? I, have it, I picked it up at camp meeting. It was one of these free books. They were handing out all these free books. It's written by a Catholic priest. And it describes how before the end of the world, Jesus will appear in the Middle East. He will unite them all into a faith movement. And on Friday, they'll celebrate that day, on Sabbath, and then on Sunday. And it disparages the Seventh-day Sabbath throughout the pages of that book. I said, Lord, I thought I was getting a book on Joshua so I could preach a sermon series on Joshua. I brought it home from camp meeting, and it was this, this whole scenario of last-day events. Well, think, think about that. Wouldn't that then be a really strange mixture? I mean, you got Buddhists, the people of Islam, you got the Christians mixing in there. You get uh, some of the Christians themselves have different days of worship depending on where they're at. Um, you, you start throwing in all these weird beliefs about death, all, it just this huge conglomerate. Uh, you get the Wiccans involved in it. Uh, you get the, the New Age people involved in it. I mean, just this whole calling people together for peace because of all the war and the crime in the world. And then a figure, amazingly, in that book emerges. He begins to heal people. And then they start putting it together. Oh, this is actually Jesus in the book. And so imagine if that really did happen. And you had a whole group uniting together, and then they began to have troubles even despite the fact that they were trying to promote peace. And then they found a group that they could blame it on. Historically, it's always been the Jews that have been blamed. It's just the way it is. They were blamed for our depression here in America as well. And so you find they look for the, the scapegoat. And so that religious culture, to my, in my opinion, would be considered a fallen group of people. So what does this have to do with the teaching? Well, we have to be not afraid to say what is happening in the world is not of the word of God. If it's going against and drawing people away from Jesus, then we have to call it for what it is. Not in a mean way, not in a condemning way. But say, so, you know, clearly here's the way of Jesus. This is just going somewhere else. I don't want to go with it. And you don't want to go with it either. Because if you do, you'll eventually find yourself in a movement of hatred, a movement of fear, and a movement that is going to silence all opposers. I don't want to be a part of that. And that didn't that happen in Babylon too? The three guys stood up against it, and what did they want to do? Kill them. This is the type of language that Revelation's pointing you back to. Watch out for Babylon, it's fallen. So the summary is this. We will have a worldwide proclamation of a need for a total life commitment to Jesus. That's the everlasting gospel. Our total lives committed to Jesus. It comes after 1798, more specifically after 1844 because the judgment hour began then. And this message would restore creator worship and warn of the dangers of Babylon. Warn of the dangers of a worldwide movement to draw you and I away from the word of God and away from Jesus. I don't find anybody else preaching that. They used to preach it in the Midwest. You go to Beaver City, Nebraska. It's holding Revelation Now series. And as we're going through and we get down to the little horn, they're like, as I go to visit in the homes after that, I thought for sure they were going to crucify me and throw stones at me for that teaching. We actually had a huge attendance that night. 
30 visitors for a little church that normally has only 30 in attendance. So huge people coming from the community, and as I went around visiting them, they say, we used to preach that. In fact, we used to drive any, and I don't think you should do this, but they did it. We used to drive all Catholics out of town when they came into town. Say, you're not welcome here. I'm like, whoa. So what happened? And they began to describe me. These are church leaders and other fellowships that are coming to the meetings that are uniting together as we study. And they say, well, we just began to just teach the love of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't teach the love of Jesus. That's really the foundation. That's what we've been talking about all the way up till today. Isn't this the love of Jesus? To say someone is going to take you away from Jesus, watch out for it. Stay focused on Jesus. We would warn the dangers of Babylon. You find very few that are doing that anymore. You have an obligation to tell somebody if they're in danger. And you have an obligation to protect people from falsehood. You have an obligation to protect vulnerable people. And if you think about it, at the end of time, some of these will be the most vulnerable people in the world. They'll have leaders that will literally coerce them and their families to positions where they can control them. That's what Revelation 13 talks about. Now, by economic boycott? Yes. If you go against the grain and have your word of God, and, and in some of these countries, even if you have it now, you're persecuted for it. Imagine living in a system like that and wishing you could somehow be free. And yet, here we are, we know that's going to happen, and we're doing nothing to warn people of it, to tell them to study the word of God, to show them that this is, not, this is the wrong way. And then when that Jesus figure, whatever, appears in the desert place or in the hidden room, like Jesus says, we don't even tell them, telling them to watch out for it. Don't follow it. This is what the Seventh-day Adventist Church needs to do, as well as proclaiming a wonderful message of Jesus. We need to couple it with the idea that, of staying focused on Him, on His truth, no matter what anybody else tells you. And so Babylon is a very dangerous place. They worship images in Babylon. We find that they teach the false doctrine of immort the immortal soul, which in essence means that those people can communicate with you. And a lot of places when I hold meetings, those people who communicate with the loved one, they have a message that trumps the Bible. They look to that loved one instead of looking to the Bible. That's not biblical. Isaiah 8 talks about that. Why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Why not consult God? Babylon teaches a false doctrine of sun worship, which we find encompassing in the Sunday. It profanes the Holy Sabbath and pretty much disregards it. In America, do you think we regard the Sabbath or disregard it? How come we don't have churches all over the place keeping the Sabbath? We do have some, but what we find is, you know, in general, we disregard it. Today's a lawn mowing day and a day to go shopping and to do whatever else you want to do. Then this system of Babylon will have its own system of works set up. In other words, if you don't go along with it, you then will suffer consequences. So then isn't salvation then by approved, being approved of by man's standard? Isn't that a system of works? It will develop into that. It will be a church and state alliance and commit fornications with the kings of the earth. It will unite with them in a way that is unbiblical, in a way that God never intended. And they'll claim that they're setting up like another nation of Israel. That's not the case. Jesus comes as king of kings and lord of lords, and this stands right in the face of it. Has other churches under her influence? This is not just talking, if, she, if it's, she's got other daughters, then that means this is pointing out to that one power, again, that medieval church of Rome. And so as I look at all of that, I think of all the abuse that's taken place in the past with that system. And I say, you know what? I don't want people to experience that again. 
I will stand against that system and I will die standing against that system because it doesn't point to Jesus. It does not point to Jesus. And you could be people that could point people to Jesus if you would wish to. And as I think of this next point in the teaching, I'm going to go on down, fast forward through some of this. There's a whole lot more here. Some of us may be tempted to say, well, we teach the truth. Who's the truth? Do you somehow have an ownership on Jesus? Do I? We're learning as we go along here. We have revealed Word of God, right? But we don't own Jesus. As Seventh-day Adventists, you are not the only ones that are going to finish this work up. God's going to raise up stones, more than likely. But we have an obligation as a people to do it. He's called us to do it. In the prophetic time frame, we have been called and said, why don't you do it? And if we do not do it, he will raise up the stones to do it. You will find people who are uneducated, who are not part of this fellowship, who when the state comes and, dis and just disregards your freedoms here, they will stand for it, and some of us will not. And so don't say somehow in yourself that you are the only one. That you, you have the truth. As a church, you are not the only one. You've been given these wonderful truths. If you don't share it and declare it, then in essence, it's taken away from you and given to others. And they were chosen not because they were special, but as choosing made them special. That's what made Israel special. That's what makes you special. So to give a brief summary, timing, I find Seventh-day Adventist Church came up after 1798. It gives a judgment hour message that says, Jesus is coming soon. This friend that you've looking forward to, he's coming soon. And they proclaim a message that's life-changing that says, watch out for the things out there that will draw you away from Jesus. Focus on him. He will change you. And really, those are compelling to me. And as a college student, when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, the, the teaching and the, and the uh, prophecy, the timing of the movement was really, wow, look at that. But to me, what's really hold me fast over all the years is the people. The testimony that I see coming through the people of this church. Like Don James. Somehow he believes this, and I know we have a great capacity for love, but and we need, to kind of, we need to keep looking at that. But I have seen Seventh-day Adventists with such huge capacity for, to love, and I've seen the opposite. But the reason why I'm still here is because, yes, the timing makes sense. Yes, the teaching makes sense. But I'm here because you're here. And it, if you don't like that, then you go to the book of Hebrews and it says not forsaking yourself together, especially as you see the day drawing nigh. There's, there's something about us drawing together. There's something about encouraging one another. There's something about the testimony of a fellow human being who has been reached by this beautiful message that loves Jesus. And so there I was before I became a Christian. I remember this weird group uh, wanted me to do community service for them. And I, I remember I had broken the law a few times, and so I had 500 hours to do. And you, you add that, that's quite a big, that means I had built up over time a lot of record to get that stupid penalty. But there I was, one time, going out door to door with a young group, and they were handing, they putting, it's strange, they were putting these, ba these, these bags on doors with a little note on it, saying that they wanted food in the bag. 
and then they were going to come back later and pick up that food. Doesn't that seem kind of strange to anybody? I mean, it looked kind of strange to me. I was like, wow, that's, what, what are they going to do with all that food? And my mom's getting by on food stamps, so maybe we need some of that food, you know? So here I am as a teenager putting these bags out on the door. And you all know what that is. They're, they're picking up those goods, and they're going to distribute it for Thanksgiving baskets, really. That's what I found out later. But that was one of my first exposures. And then that was part of my community service. And then there was a guy named Al Reeves, janitor of the church. He said, you know, you can work off a few hours at the church if you want. He just comes right in, unlocks the door. And in that town, you don't have a whole lot of crime and all of that back then. But he would unlock the door, say, here's the janitor's closet, unlock it. He'd say, I'll be back in a little bit. And just leave. And here's this, this guy and his twin brother looking at each other like, we could really get some stuff here, couldn't we? But then there was this respect, though. It's like dawned on us that this guy trusts us. And we cleaned that church, I mean, toothbrush style, just as deep as we could clean it. We just felt this peace there. And then that community service had a lot more left to go. And a guy says, hey, why don't you come and work on my apartments and paint them for me? He's I got all these apartment buildings and, and I need you to paint some apartments. We hadn't done it before. And he's the one who gave me that meatball sandwich. But I remember him distinctly leaving his front door unlocked, knowing as he signed the paper every time, here's a thief and a fighter, here's a thief and a fighter. He's, every time he signs it, he sees that right there. And he leaves the door unlocked and says, whenever you need to go in, wash up or whatever, just go ahead. And I remember walking in past one room into the restroom, and looking beyond it and seeing a bedroom, thinking, in my klepto way of thinking, there's surely something I can get out of there. But it hit me. This guy trusts me. He loves me. And I remember walking into his bedroom, and he doesn't know, I shouldn't even say this online. I remember walking in there and looking around, and it hit me again. This guy trusts you and loves you. So I walked out, used the restroom, got back out to work, and that was one of those days where he got me a meatball sandwich. And then she made meatballs without meat. That was amazing to see that. And these type of people just kept coming along. And here I am years later. Those stories still echo down through time. Every church I've pastored, there's been people like that. Some of you are like that. Hopefully all of us are eventually becoming more like that. Spirit-led, loving people, loving people. And so I was baptized there in 1999. There I am coming out of the water. That was a strange deal. I mean, think about someone putting a cloth over your face and putting you under the water. I mean, that's, that's a real strange feeling, <laughs> especially when you're, you're a big guy. And there I am, and there's my dad and my brother. There we are. And there's people sitting there on that bank in this picture here that still I remember their lovingness. Here's the pastor's wife here. And this is a member there of that local church. They're all along the shoreline there. And across the shore, the drink, uh, drinking partying is going on over there. And here I am over here united with this church. And so yes, I see the timing. Yes, I see the teaching. But you know what I see the most? The loving people. I've seen the unloving kind too. But I am choosing to focus on the loving people that reflect Jesus in the Seventh-day Adventist church that reached out to me and I in return can reach out to others. So why not be a Seventh-day Adventist then? It seems to fit the biblical picture. Yes, we have room to grow but a great capacity to love. Why not choose to remember then, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, why you are even here today? The month of October is meant to be a month of remembrance. And I think it's because Jesus worked in your life or in the lives of others who touched you, and that's why you're here today. You're here in a Seventh-day Adventist building for a reason.
God called you here in his plan of salvation at this time, and he's telling you that he loves you and he has a purpose for your life. And I'm here because I keep choosing to commit myself to him. I could just throw in the towel. You know, I, I put that post on Facebook about that knuckle incident last week, and my friends are just thinking, you are just, <laughs> if you hear my whole, all my stories of ministry, all, the, all the, the troubles and the death threats and all kinds of stuff, you think, why is he even still up there anyway? It's because God will not let me go, and I cannot let go of this. And it's because soon he's coming. Soon time will be no more as we know it. Soon we'll say, this is so cheap, isn't it? It was so cheap to get to heaven. Heaven is cheap enough. Look what Jesus did for me. And you won't see these scars. You'll see his nail-scarred hands welcoming you. And I can't welcome you at the door today. My hands are still sore. So forgive me, but I'm not going to welcome you at the door. Some of you squeeze way too hard and, and the knuckles are not there. So he'll welcome you. And he will say, come in, all of you who have been faithful. You've been faithful a little, I'll make you rule over much. You are going to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I will never retire. It just will never happen. Maybe he'll give me a reprieve and I'll get to be a farmer like I want to be, but this will be going on forever. And best part is, each one of you will be spreading this message, not just in the world to come, but in the universe, full of peace. And so it is almost time for the Lord to come, and I imagine him coming back there in that cloud picture there, and us going up with the angels, and then somewhere or another it parts, and we go out into outer space, and somewhere way out there, we talk about Orion's Nebula. I look up and see that all the time, and think, wow, I want to go through there someday. Don't you long for that? Aren't you a Seventh-day Adventist for no other reason other than the fact that it gives you hope, and that you're people of hope? So why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because this is a movement of destiny. Father in heaven, thank you for the Seventh-day Adventist church. Lord, help us to be the loving church you'd have us to be. Help us to be the ones who tell the world of their eternal value in Jesus and are trying to prepare him for his soon return. But Lord, we pray that you can give us a holy boldness for that, empower us for that, and Lord, Help us to remember why we are Seventh-day Adventists. We're people of, of prophecy, a people, a part of a movement. Help us not to lose that focus. Help us to focus on you, Jesus, until we see you in the clouds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.